Uh, I do a big idea on Sundays, and I don't have a well-formed big idea this Sunday, so you're going to get a chance to hear me what I call noodle. I'm just going to yak at you for a few minutes. Uh, the, the the thing that struck me the most this week is, uh, for whatever reason, the name Marco Polo and the, and the, and the country or city-state of Venice has popped up uh, in my discussion at least five times, uh, one or two by design, but one or two by accident. And... When I notice a, a, a thought or a phrase coming up over and over again, I generally pay attention to it. So maybe the big idea is pay attention. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world around you, and there's often uh, when, when, when something needs to come to you, sometimes it starts uh, making itself manifest, meaning it becomes obvious. Uh, and for some reason, Marco Polo and Venice needed to be in my, in my thoughts this week because I kept bumping into them. And whether I did that on purpose or whether the world's trying to tell me something, I'm not quite sure. Good morning to Leo. Thank you for joining, Leo. Uh, but I've always learned to pay attention to my surroundings. And I think uh, one of the attributes of being a great business owner is somebody who can pay attention. Uh, the world that you operate in is moving and changing all the time. And when you pay attention, you generally uh, make better decisions and um, you're generally more nimble. Uh, we can go on and on with uh, the value of paying attention. So uh, I'll just noodle a little bit about Marco Polo in Venice and uh, this guy, Mark Curlancy, who I just... Uh, uh, bumped into again. I mean, I've, I've read his books quite a while ago. Uh, he wrote a famous book called Cod, and then he wrote a book called Salt. Uh, and the book Salt is probably the one that I, if somebody were new to him, uh, I would start with this book Salt. It's a, it's a description of what happened in the world from the standpoint of the, of the uh, commodity salt. And, um, Salt, something that today in the year 19, or I was going to say 19 something, but in the year 2019, uh, salt's a, you know, very common and doesn't cost very much money. And uh, we take it for granted. And it's just something we put on our food when we feel like it. Uh, but throughout history, uh, salt has been very, very important. And at times it was the most precious thing in the world. And... Uh, I start thinking about things like that. What what in God's name was going on that that would make salt the most precious thing in the world? And it's a, it, it, you know, I think a combination of things have to happen to make something so valuable. Number one is there can't be too much of it. So there, so one question one might ask is, going back in time, was there ever a time when there wasn't enough salt? Uh, and uh, another thing that makes something so precious is that it, it, it's so valuable. And what made salt valuable was well, salt was uh, what we used to preserve food. And for people that lived in certain climates, particularly in Europe where they had longer winters in, say, Africa or Asia, some parts of Asia, um, uh, you know, they had to figure out a way to uh, preserve food, particularly through the winter, uh, that they could eat and get nutrition from all winter long. And so it was our version of being a squirrel, you know. <laughs> so, squirrels put away acorns. Well, we salted things. And uh, uh, and we it was, it was our best technique, I guess, at the time for preserving 
food and uh, and it, it, you know it became almost a life or death kind of thing. And the way this ties to Venice is that um, Venice was was started. Uh, well, Venice first came into being in Roman times. It was a marsh. Uh, what today is Venice was just a, sort of an outlier marsh that I don't think anybody used. But one nice thing about the marshes and sort of these off, little sort of low-lying offshore islands off of Italy uh, was that it afforded some protection so that when the Roman Empire fell apart, some of the people from the Roman Empire decided to go over to uh, these little islands that are now called Venice uh, to get away from the marauding uh, Huns or Visigoths or whoever they were. So, um, uh, but they, you know, were now encamped in an area that had very little to recommend itself. The only thing they could do was fish. And, oh, by the way, these marshes were made out of salt. Uh, and, it, you know, slowly over time, they figured out that they could sell the salt and, and get some income. And uh, the, the, the empire that became Venice uh, started on a, on a bed of salt. Uh, and people, and by the time they got to that, so Venice started in, I guess, the late 400s. <clears throat> and by the time you got to seven or 800, Venice um, was a wealthy, you know, state that, that, uh, that where the, and their basic enterprise was selling salt and people came from far away, far and away to buy salt uh, in in Venice, and uh, I'm not going to give you a whole history of Venice here this morning. If you're interested, uh, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough compared to the people who have written great books on the subject. And if you're not interested, <laughs> I'm not going to bother you all morning long with the history of Venice. Uh, but it, there's some interesting things about it. And I was talking about paying attention. There's some interesting lessons here. Venice was as close to a democracy as anything had ever seen back then. It wasn't really a democracy. I mean, the women didn't have votes and they certainly had slaves, but it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a system built on royalty. It was a system built on uh, a combination of merit and seniority. Uh, and yeah, you had to be part of the good group to, to, to be part of the ruling class. Uh, so not everybody, they had classes and not everybody could, could um, participate in government. Uh, but you probably had a better chance of, of rising up through the ranks in Venice than almost anywhere else uh, at that time. And uh, that, I think, was one of the things that contributed to their continued rise. Uh, they got good at, at uh, building and commissioning ships, and, uh, and more and more their uh, people, instead of asking people to come to them to buy salt, they were able to deliver salt to somebody else. So by the time you got to the Italian Renaissance, which is now 13, 14, 1500s, uh, and quite a few years later, you, uh, Venice was one of the key city-states in Italy that, that sort of brought Europe out of the dark ages. And that brings me to, uh, you know, just another name that for whatever reason just popped up over and over again, and that's Marco Polo. And Marco Polo and his story uh, just talks about the incredible lengths that people will go to to trade. And uh, uh, to me, 
Uh, Marco Polo's story was fascinating. I bumped into Marco Polo and his story when I was very young, when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, somewhere in there. And I read about the travels of Marco Polo, and I just thought it was fascinating that this guy would, would go by first sea and then land uh, on his journey from from northern Italy to uh, the, 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 the most eastern part of China. They, it's, it's, historians believe that it's certain that he landed in what's now Beijing and stayed there for the better part of 20 years. And uh, there's no, of course, way we can be 100% certain that the story is, story is entirely accurate, but there are so many corroborating accounts. Uh, there's Chinese, um, um, there's Chinese writings that show that, that Marco Polo and his family were there. Marco Polo went with his father and his uncle uh, and it was a 20-something year journey, and, uh, and uh, it, it just reads like, you know, a fantastic novel. Like, why would they do that? And uh, the fact that, I mean, it's amazing that Chinese people would just be happy to have Italian people <laughs> come and hang out with them and be, be part of their lives. And, uh, uh, you know, we have this image of people not liking foreigners and and uh, and it's common that people hurt each other and killed each other um, uh, when they when they encountered strangers and here uh, something almost entirely the opposite happened it seemed like uh, Kublai Khan and and the other rulers of the time uh, welcomed Marco Polo and his group and and uh, and um, and uh, Cherished them and actually, you know, valued them, and and used their knowledge for for stuff. So, uh, I just wonder what what makes somebody go on a journey like that. I mean, what what is this all about? Now, Marco Polo went because he wanted to be, I think, with his dad and his uncle. He was, I guess, raised by people who weren't his mom or his dad and. His dad came back from a long journey and met him for the first time. Marco met him for the first time when he was already well into his teens, I think 16 or 17 years old. The first time he met his father. And I just, that is like, whoa. <laughs> you don't know your father for 15 or 16 years and he comes back. Well, he must be a real hero to you. And the father says, hey, want to go for a little stroll? We're just, we're just going to go from here back to China. It's no big deal. Just... Just a journey that takes two or three years. Uh, I just, you know, it just makes me think. Well, what was life back then, and why would they do this, and what was the benefit? What what motivated them? What? Uh, but I think the Polos and other merchant families in Venice were like kings. They were like heroes. They were like uh, it was it was what they did, and uh, and they were building a nation. So I like stuff like that. I think there are lessons back there uh, that we're pretty sure happened that we can bring forward to today and use for today. So I guess um, uh, in my Barney's Business Basics, which I'm doing on Saturday, I have been uh, I'm doing a couple 
segments on the history of business. And so I guess my big idea for the day, I, I guess I'm trying to make two points. Number one, pay attention to the world around you. I think uh, you'll, you'll notice when you notice things like um, uh, patterns and coincidences, there generally aren't coincidences and patterns do mean something and, and, and pay attention. Uh, and I guess my other big point is that there's a tremendous amount of value in learning the history of things. Uh, I, I think the way things have happened in the past will give you clues as to the way things will happen in the future. It's not necessarily a 100% predictor of what's going to happen in the future, but patterns are clear and some patterns repeat themselves over and over and over again. Okay, thanks for joining me this morning and letting me noodle. I noodled today. Uh, I hope you found it entertaining. I will be here tomorrow morning to answer questions. So at uh, nine o'clock tomorrow morning, I will be back and I will answer your questions in Double Your Sales with Barney Cohen. <laughs>